Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. I can think of no better thing to do than to experience the presence and the glory of our Father, of Yahweh, than with a group of people like all of you. It's such, it's such a privilege. So my name is Heather, and um, we are continuing in our Revelation series. This is week 16? 16, which I can't even believe, because it seems like we just started it. And if I'm being honest, 22 weeks If you're new here, if you haven't been here before, we're in the middle of teaching on the book of Revelation. And there are 22 chapters in Revelation, and we're we're spending 22 weeks teaching on them and learning about them, which is actually about an eighth of what we need. (laughs) So as we've been studying and as we've been going through this beautiful book, we keep saying, like, we're leaving so much out. There's so much that we're not teaching, and the Lord keeps reminding us of this. It is not our job to tell you everything about Revelation. It is, it is our job to give you a taste of what is in there. And then you get the privilege, if you desire it, to go in and find more. Because God does not just reveal himself to people who stand on a stage. God reveals himself to his children. So if you are a child of God, there is knowledge and understanding in this book for you to seek out. So as we're talking today, as I'm talking today and you're like, well, why didn't she talk about that? Or why didn't she explain that? I would say, go search it out. And if you need help knowing how to do that, come and talk to me. We can help you. We can give you tools to help you do that. But I want to go back first to last Sunday. Ike taught us so incredibly well about God's wrath. You know, so many times you hear people say, why would a loving God do that or allow that? And it's a very um, honest and real question that people ask. And I thought Ike's explanation of it was so beautiful. He talked about how just wrath is generated from love. True love requires the capacity for great wrath. And he talked about someone coming into his home, breaking into his home, and his wrath as a dad, as a protector, defending his family. And how that wrath comes from a place of great love. So it has to come from a foundation that God's wrath is not about destroying us. God's wrath is about his love for us. And I was reading this week with my kids in 2 Samuel, and I read this passage that's almost like a psalm in the book of 2 Samuel. It's like it came from the psalms and got transplanted into 2 Samuel. So David has, King David, he's been running from his enemies. He's had, even his own family hated him and was out to try to get him at one point. Saul, the king that was king before him. So he's just had like this onslaught of enemies. Maybe some of you can relate to that, to that today. You're like, man, it just, they just keep coming. It keeps coming. It keeps coming. And David once again finds himself in this battle And then the Lord delivers him. But I want to read this to you because I 
I want us, I want us to step back for just a moment back to what Ike said, because it ties in with what we're going to talk about today. I used to apologize for large passages of scripture. Sorry, it's kind of long, but I'm not doing that anymore because this is the word of God. And if we can't read God's word for an extended period of time without thinking, man, that was really long, then, well, let's read this. 2 Samuel 22. David sang the song to the Lord on the day the Lord rescued him from all his enemies and from Saul. He sang, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me and my place of safety. He is my refuge, my savior, the one who saves me from violence. I called on the Lord who is worthy of praise and he saved me from my enemies. The waves of death overwhelmed me. Floods of destruction swept over me. The grave wrapped its ropes around me. Death laid a trap in my path. He is so drama. <laughs> David, relax. But in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God for help. He heard me from his sanctuary. My cries reached his ears. This is the part I want you to hear. This is how God reacts to David's cry of distress. The earth quaked and trembled. The foundations of the heaven shook. They quaked because of his anger. Smoke poured from his nostrils. Fierce flames leaped from his mouth. Glowing coals blazed forth from him. He opened the heavens. Think about that. He opened the heavens and came down. Dark storm clouds were beneath his feet. Mounted on a mighty angelic being, he flew, soaring on the wings of the wind. He shrouded himself in darkness, veiling his approach with dense rain clouds. A great brightness shone around him, and burning coals blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot arrows and scattered his enemies. His lightning flashed, and they were confused. Then, at the command of the Lord, at the blast of his breath, the bottom of the sea could be seen, and the foundations of the earth were laid bare. He reached down from heaven and rescued me. He drew me out of the deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemies, from those who hated me and were too strong for me. They attacked me at a moment when I was in distress, but the Lord supported me. He led me to a place of safety. He rescued me because he delights in me. That is the wrath of God being poured out to rescue you because of his delight and his great love for you. And I find it so beautiful that David wrote this. We talk here all the time about the heart of David. We want a heart like David. And we're always talking about heart condition. You know, what is in your heart is what causes you to act. You know, when you, if you're a parent and you have a child who has a, a disobedient heart or something, a rebellious heart, you can for sure see it on their body, right? You know, and they're like, fine, I'll do it. Like, you can see it. Even as adults, if your heart is hardened and you come into church, I guarantee you it's showing on your body. 
I've seen it on some of your bodies. You know, it's like, man, work on what's going on inside right now. Okay, so heart condition, that's where we have to start. And when Ike said that last week, he said it so perfectly. He said the crushing, these judgments that we're about to get into when we're talking about, or he talked about last week, and we're going to talk about some more in the coming weeks, all that judgment and that wrath for those who heart, whose hearts are soft, it's about their sanctification. It's about their cleansing. But for those who don't repent, whose hearts are hardened, your heart, you, there's like nothing can be changed in you if your heart is hard. God can't work in you. He can, but he's not going to force himself on you. So in order to fully grasp that these truths in Revelation, these kind of hard to understand truths sometimes, our hearts have to be soft. We have to fix our eyes on Jesus. And we have to understand that our heart condition dictates our actions. So as we're going through Revelation 10, 11, I want you to keep this in mind. Keep your eyes on Jesus. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ and guard your heart. Proverbs 4:23 says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. So now from that place, we're going to jump into today's revelation text. If you've been with us a little while, you know that we're teaching through Revelation, but we're not necessarily teaching through it um, in order, chapters 1 through 22, because it's not written that way. Um, and chapters 6 and 8 were all about the seals. Jason taught on that a few weeks ago, and he asked us this question, who can stand? And he answered that question with, who can stand? Those sealed by the blood of the Lamb can stand. Those who've turned their lives to Jesus, who've been sealed with his blood, they stand. But in the middle of those two chapters, six and eight, the seals, we have this interlude. We have this kind of pause, this break. And it was chapter seven. And Katie preached on that a couple of weeks ago. And it's this anchoring passage, right? It's this passage to, re to remind us we're sealed, and how when we have a correctly placed fear of the Lord, we receive something from him. So then last week, Ike preached on the trumpets, and he preached on the judgments that each of those trumpets represent. And I don't know if you caught this or not, but the trumpets are in chapters 8 and 9 and 11. What's missing? Chapters 10 and part of 11. So there's another interlude. There's another pause. Pay attention to what's going on here. So today we're in chapter 10, and 10 comes right before the last trumpet, 11. Ike and I wanted to do this really cool thing, and I really wish we would have done it because it would have been awesome. Like he preach for part of a, a Sunday, and then I finish, and then he starts, and or I start, and then he finishes. But that would have been... We should have done it. It would have been fun. <laughs> Next time. So where we find ourselves today is in another interlude. Okay, we're going we're gonna to go back a little bit. And here's the question that I want to ask all of us today to think about as we work our way through these next chapter and a half. What is the role of the church, 
those who are sealed by the blood of the lamb, what is the role of the church to be as these judgments are played out in history? How do we respond as Christ followers? So we've got judgments, one through six trumpets, and then we have the Lord saying, hold on a second, here's how I want you to respond. Here's your role in all of this. And then we have the last and final trumpet in judgment. I think that's why this interlude is here. It's like God reminding us and saying, hold on, I haven't forgotten about you. I have a role and a plan for you in this part of the story. And I want to remind you of what that is right now. Have you ever been a part of something big and important, like an event or a project, and and you go, you show up, and everybody is there, and everybody's like knows what they're supposed to be doing, right? And it's like you're standing there, and you're going, what am I supposed to do? Where do I fit into this? And all of a sudden, the person that's in charge comes over to you, and they point at you, and they say, hey, I have a job for you. I have something for you to do because you have the gifts and talents and the fortitude to do this exact same thing. And then they tell you exactly what needs to be done and they tell you extra details that you didn't even know and all of a sudden you have a place. You found your place and you feel like you're a part of the story. You feel like you're a part of the project. That's what God is doing here. He's saying, church, I have a place for you. and I don't want you to forget it. And I don't want you to get sucked into fear or looking at the world around you and forget the role that I have for you. Not because he needs us to do it, but because he loves us so much that he wants to include us in this beautiful story that he has. So let's read. We're going to read Revelation 10 and then half of 11. Then... I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun and his feet were like pillars of fire. And in his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a great shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the seven thunders answered. When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, shh, keep secret what the seven thunders said, and do not write it down. Then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand toward heaven. He swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, the sea and everything in it. He said, There will be no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again. Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. 
Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Then I was given a measuring stick and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers. But do not measure the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1,260 days. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. When they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them and he will conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their body. No one will be allowed to bury them. All people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of these two prophets who had tormented them. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them and they stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them. Then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in the earthquake and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second terror is past, but look, the third terror is coming quickly. That's a lot, isn't it? No? That is a lot. Try paring that down to a 45-minute message. That was my week this week. So we're going to actually go verse by verse for this so you have a clear understanding of what's happening here. Remember, the book of Revelation is imagery and symbols, not literal. So in AD 96, John is seeing this vision of things that are already known to him things that he already understands, things that will connect with those who are listening to his message. I would guess that if this vision was given to us today, some of this imagery would be different. It would be things that would connect with us, things that would make sense to us based on our culture and the things in history that were happening right now. See, Revelation was not written to us, but it was written for us. So as we go through this imagery, they're going to be up on the screen so we can visualize what's happening through this symbolism. And at the very end, they're all going to be listed together so you can take pictures of it if you want to go back and, and look at it. And I don't have time today to go into all the references, but they're on the screen with each symbol. So take a picture of that. And if you don't believe me, go and that's fine. You don't have to believe me, but go and find out in God's word and then maybe you'll believe him. Okay, so 
I also want you to keep something else in mind. This helped me a lot. God is outside of time. He is outside of time the way we understand time. The Bible gives us a very tangible clue to this when it says that a thousand years are like a day to the Lord. He isn't held to the confines of our ideas of time. So this leads us to understand that much of what we see in Revelation has already happened, is happening right now, and will happen in the future. It's a looking back, it's a present day, and it's a still to come. Now, this baffles our finite minds, right? We're like, oh, what? But just go with it. Like, just tell yourself, I can't understand how God looks at time, and so I'm just going to trust him and believe him when he says he knows things we don't know. I will remind you of this later as we get on into some of the specific parts of this text. So we're going to start with verses 1 through 3. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. And in his small hand was a small scroll that had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a great shout like the roar of a lion, and when he shouted, the seven thunders answered. In the most simple explanation, because believe me, there's a depth here that we don't have time to go into today, that mighty angel is Jesus. The cloud surrounding him, the rainbow over his head, his face shining like the sun, feet like pillars of fire, all come from other passages in the New and the Old Testament that tell us it's Jesus. He has one foot, his right foot, his strong, dominant right foot on the sea, which sea is often um, represents chaos. So he has this right foot over the chaos that's happening in the world. And he has his other foot on the land. So this is showing us that he has dominion over all of it. He has power and control over all of it. Nothing is out of his control. Nothing that happened then, nothing that is happening now, and nothing that's going to happen surprises him. He has control over all of it. Verse 4, when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, keep secret what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. Church, some things are just not for us to know. Some things are just not for us to comprehend and understand. And I know that's hard sometimes because we want to figure everything out. You get in an argument with a friend and you just want to, you want to figure it out, right? You want to control it. You want to, try to, you want to try to answer every question that you have in your mind. And God's like, no, no, that's not for you to know right now. This is my plan. I will reveal to you what I want to reveal to you when I'm ready to reveal it to you. Verses 5 through 7. Then the angel I saw, standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand toward heaven. He swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever 
who created the heavens and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, and the sea and everything in it. He said, there will be no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. We see from Revelation 1 where Jesus is being described in even more depth. We see his right hand raised and he's holding seven stars. And those seven stars represent the seven churches. So here we see, and I, we also see this picture of God of the cosmos, right? God over the land, God over the sea, God over the heavens. But we also see here that Jesus is swearing an oath in his own name. He swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever. He's swearing an oath in his own name to continue to do the will of the Father, First, the will of the Father was for Jesus to come to earth, to die on a cross, to save us so that his blood could rescue us, right? Now, his, the will of the Father is for Jesus to come back in this final rescue of us and in the destruction of his enemies. So Jesus is saying that what the Father has asked of me, swearing in my own name, I will do it. I will accomplish it. And then he says this, there will be no more delay. It's time. The time has come for the final part of the plan to be fulfilled. The time has come for the final judgment. When that seventh trumpet sounds, God's plan will be fulfilled. But listen, this is what's so incredible. That's, this is why I think we see this interlude here between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. God loves us so incredibly much that he gives people a chance, even at the very end. Right before his plan is final, no more delay. He's like, hold on, come to me. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he wants to have a relationship with you. And I think that that is happening in your life right now. As I was writing this part of my message, I felt the Lord say, tell them there's no more delay. In the micro story of your life, zoom in for a moment. Zoom in for a moment in your life, in your part of the story. There is something in your life that you've been waiting for, something that you've been patiently asking the Lord to reveal his plan to you. And today he says, there is no more delay. Listen to me, I'm prophesying over all of you right now. This is for some of you in here. I speak into that dream in your life that has been shelved for a long time. And I say, there is no more delay in seeing it fulfilled. I speak into the returning of the prodigals. And I say, there is no more delay in them coming home. I speak into that healing that you have been asking God for for a very long time. And I said, there is no more delay in your healing. I speak into that broken relationship and I say, there is no more delay in restoration of that relationship. See, God loves us so much that even at the end, he pauses. He pauses his judgments so that more can come to him, so that more can be saved. That's the love of the father that would be driven to such wrath against his enemies who are harming his children.
verses 9 through 11. Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again. Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So we see that John is told to go and take the open small scroll from Jesus and he's told to eat it. It'll be sweet when he eats it and then it's going to turn bitter in his stomach. The small scroll represents several things. It represents the truth, Jesus. It represents God's message, his plan of wrath and restoration. And eating the small scroll represents internalizing God's message, understanding it and accepting it. See, he, John had to ingest it and digest it in order to understand what God was saying to him. So why would it be sweet and then bitter? Well, the sweetness represented his plan for those of us who are sealed. God's plan is amazing for those of us that have the blood of Jesus that covers us. It's sweet like honey. But God's plan for those whose hearts are hardened toward him is bitter. It's judgment and it ends in isolation from God forever. It's also this understanding that, that John was ingesting it and digesting it and the truths and the responsibility of those who are called to prophesy are going to be hard to do. Because they're going to have to say hard things. Jesus was just giving him a reminder. Jesus is giving us a reminder. You are saved. My plan for you is good. But the things that I'm going to ask of you, that you're going to have to tell the nations, people who are still far from me, who are not covered by the blood of Jesus, that won't be easy. And there will be times when it makes you feel sick because of what you have to do. So one of the answers to our question is, what is our role in the midst of all this judgment? As a people of God, as sealed ones, we are called to prophesy truth. Even when that truth is hard to speak. Even when it makes it unpopular. Even when it goes against cultural norms. We are called to prophesy his plan. And listen, that's not just for people who have the spiritual gift of prophecy. That's for all of us. That's for anyone who is sealed by the blood of Jesus. Moving on to chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. Then I was given a measuring stick and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers. But do not measure the outer courtyard for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. So measure is just simply measure. John is told to go measure the temple of God. He's not being asked here to measure a physical building. We know very clearly from history that the actual temple was in ruins at this point. So he's not being told to go measure the temple in Jerusalem. But I want to take you back to the prophet Zechariah. And I want you to see 
part of where John is getting this imagery from. Zechariah 2. When I looked again, I saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. Now, this is an Old Testament prophet receiving a vision from the Lord. What are you doing? I asked. He replied, I'm going to measure Jerusalem to see how wide and how long it is. Then the angel who was with me went to meet a second angel who was coming toward him. The other angel said, hurry and say to that young man, Jerusalem will someday, someday be so full of people and livestock that there won't be room enough for everyone. Many will live outside the city walls. Then I myself will be a protective wall of fire around Jerusalem, says the Lord, and I will be the glory inside the city. The Lord says, shout and rejoice, O beautiful Jerusalem, for I am coming to live among you. Zechariah was prophesying about Jesus coming and about us being his dwelling place, about the spirit of God now living inside of us instead of the holy of holies in the temple where only few could enter in. So the temple of God in John's revelation in chapter 11 is the people of God. John is being told to measure those who are sealed. See how many there are. And I love that in, in this passage, he describes us as worshipers. We were made to worship Yahweh. That's God's description of us. Go measure my worshipers. But then he says something very interesting. He says, don't measure the outer courtyard. And John knew what that meant. See, in the physical temple... The outer courtyard was a place where Gentiles, so non-Jews, and others who were not properly cleansed for making offerings, it's where they were allowed to enter the temple, but they had to stay in the outer courtyard. The actual temple and the inner sanctuary, the inner temple was reserved for the priests. So John's being told, count those who are cleansed. Count those who are sealed by the blood of Jesus, but all the others, don't count them. My people, those sealed, I will be a wall of fire around them. Those who've chosen to be cleansed by the blood of the lamb. What, what he's saying, he's nodding back to Zechariah, and we see in Zechariah that God says, I will come into their midst, and I will be a wall of fire protecting them. Listen, and because God is in our midst, this is so crucial that you understand this, because God is in our midst, we are protected, not made safe, but protected. He is a wall of fire around his people. And for everyone else, those not measured, those in the outer courtyard, there are two options. Be converted and come into the family of God or be judged and not protected. He says the outer courtyard, those not by sealed by the blood of the lamb have been turned over to the nations for 42 months. Now we see that nations implies wicked. Nations implies those against the ways of God. Man-made systems and immorality. Those not sealed by the blood of Jesus are turned over 
to man-made systems, to immorality, to wickedness. We see that those not sealed by God are turned over to the immoral ways of the world and will trample the holy city, Jerusalem, the people of God, and the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan for 42 months. Okay, is it actually 42 months? Yes? No. By now, we've been telling you dates, numbers, symbols, they're just that. They're symbolic. They're not literal. Okay, 42, stick with me. 42 is 1,260 days, which is three and a half years, which is half of seven. Seven in the Bible is perfection. And we see this number 42 in a lot of other parts of scripture. We see that in, when Israel left Egypt, they left bondage and they went to the promised land where they had freedom. There were 42 stages that they went through. We see that there were 42 months or three and a half years that it did not rain when Elijah the prophet was calling for the nation to repent. There are 42 generations from Abraham, which was the foundation of God's people, the beginning of God's people, to Jesus, which was the redemption of God's people. There's 42 months is found twice for very significant reasons in the book of Daniel, also prophecy. And in Revelation 12, we see that 42 months is symbolic a symbolic time that the dragon or Satan goes after the woman who's just been given birth. So we see this number 42 all the way through the pages of scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. So this symbol, 42, refers to the amount of time between Jesus' first and last coming. It refers to the whole time, the entire time that the church is caught in the world caught in the clash of these competing kingdoms of good and evil. So it's what we're living in right now. We are caught in that clash. That's why we're asking the question, in that clash of this good and evil, how do we respond? What is our role? Here's the answer. Revelation 11, verses 3 and 4. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1,260 days. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. So who are these two witnesses? And why are there trees and lampstands? Well... Let's get the glaringly obvious question out of the way first. Are there actually going to be two people at the end of all of this that stand up against the devil and physically get killed? And are those two people Moses and Elijah? The answer is no. Again, they're symbols. Here we see three sets of two. We see two witnesses, two lampstands, and two olive trees. All three of these represent the same thing. All three of these represent the church, the sealed people of God living in his presence, protected by his wall of fire. 
Now, for time's sake, we don't have time to go and look into all the points of scripture that confirm this, but I'm going to give you one for each um, symbol, okay? Revelation 1 through 3, we studied this weeks ago. Lampstand imagery is used very clearly to describe the church. In the book of Zechariah, in chapter 4, the prophet sees a lampstand with seven lamps on it, right? Seven lamps, seven churches, the number of perfection. And he sees two olive trees on either side of the lampstand. The olive trees are called the anointed ones. Also in this passage of Zechariah, we get that very famous verse. It's not by might nor power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. He's saying this, my church, my people will not be, will not stand on their own power, will not overcome by their own might, but only through my spirit. So to summarize the witnesses, the lampstands and the olive trees, and I'm going to quote a a, a quote from Daryl Johnson, who wrote this book, which we've used a lot. He says this, those twos are a picture of the church, the people of God, under pressure in the world, full of the olive oil of the Holy Spirit, burning brightly with the fire of God. Get it? Okay. A couple more things to note in this this verse. The witnesses were clothed in burlap. Now, back in those days, wearing burlap was the sign of a couple of things. The first one is it was a sign of a prophet, Many Old Testament prophets wore burlap, and it represented not only their own repentance, but it was also a sign that they were speaking out a word to call for repentance to other people. It was also a sign of mourning, which shows the condition of their heart, a heart condition of compassion that they had for the people that they were calling to repentance. A heart of compassion saying, I desperately want you to come to know the Lord. That's what we are called to do as we are these witnesses. We are called to have hearts of compassion, not harshness, but broken hearts for people who are so far from God. That's what that burlap represents. And then to prophesy, they're told, um, go and prophesy. And that's just simply speaking forth the message of God. I think often in our culture today, we hear that word prophesy or prophecy and we, we cower back because it scares us or we think we're not qualified. But it's very simple. It's just speak forth the message of God. Revelation 5, 11, 5 and 6. If, I told you there was a lot, right? If anyone tries to harm them, the witnesses, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. So this imagery here is recalling scenes from Old Testament prophets. What God did before, you better bet he's going to do again. He's recalling his prophets performing miraculous wonders through his power and might and spirit. So in 2 Kings, we see that Elijah calls down fire twice to consume enemies who've tried tried to harm them. 
Like, that's a pretty cool superpower. Enemies, whew, consumed. In 1 Kings, we see that Elijah has asked God to shut the skies, and there's a drought, and there is no rain. It doesn't rain for three and a half years, all because God, or because Elijah used his voice in the power of the Almighty God to speak that, and it happened. In Egypt, we see through Moses' staff that God turned the waters into blood and struck the nations with all kinds of plagues. So here's what God is saying. What I've done before, I'll do again through my people. What I've done before, I will do again through you. Verses 7 through 10. When they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them, and he will conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, all people, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. The words of the Lord, the truth of God's plan, sounds like torment to those whose hearts are hardened towards him. So, there is a lot here. Chris is going to be going into a lot more detail next week about the beast, but we see it introduced in this passage in 11. Simply put, the beast is the demonic antichrist force that hates God and hates his people. And this part actually had me stuck for a long time. I had to call in the, the forces and say, help, help me Help me figure out what I'm supposed to say here. Because I couldn't wrap my head around the church being killed by the Antichrist. It seems contradictive to everything else I read in scripture. Where we overcome by the blood of the lamb. No enemy forces can stand against the might of the Lord. So why does the church end up dead? Well... Remember, this is symbolic. It's not linear. So stick with me here, okay? I asked the Lord to give me simple clarity, and here's what I got. In this part of the verse, Jerusalem represents so many things. It represents the holy city, the place where Jesus' own people were so blind and resistant to the truth of who he was, that they turned him over to the government, and he was tried and crucified. Sodom and Egypt represent all of corrupt humanity. We know that corrupt humanity doesn't just exist right now. It has existed since the beginning, the very first people, with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. So Sodom and Egypt represent human civilization at its most oppressive and resistant tendencies. So we have these two witnesses, which are the church, right? And they're seemingly dead, lying in these city streets, these city streets that are paved with great resistance to the truth. 
And in a world full of corruption and self-sufficiency and love of self instead of love of our creator, we see the church oppressed, pressed down, mocked, and in many cases, silenced and put to death. And is this just about a time still to come? I would argue it's not. Remember, what did happen, what is happening, and what is still to come. I want you to think back through history a little bit with me and think about all the times that it seemed like the church was dead. Or at the very least, the church was silent. The church was nearly silent during World War II and the Holocaust. If we go back even further, the early church of Jesus was so horrifically persecuted that it seemed like they might all be killed. Think about communist countries like China, China and North Korea, and other countries that have made Christianity illegal today, silenced the church. Joke's on them. Church is not silent over there. But it seems that way. The government thinks they are in control. Think back just to in our own country just a few years ago during COVID. The government literally shut churches down to keep people safe. And many did. Many closed their doors. Many pastors, many Christians were silent to the truth when what the world needed was a church that was awake and alive and offering hope. So what we see is that it has happened, it is happening, and it will happen. It will seem like the church is dead or silenced, and it will continue to happen. There will be more times like this. And there will be a time where it seems like the church has no life at all. But that is not how it ends. I find it so interesting that in that passage it says, all the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. We can see that so clearly today. The world gloats and celebrates when the church seems like it's been defeated. But God, listen to this. After three and a half days, God breathed life into them and they stood up. Terror struck all who were standing, who were staring at them. Then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. Does that sound familiar? Psalm 23, I'll prepare a feast for you in the presence of your enemies. Your enemies will have to watch you be delivered. Your enemies will have to watch you be raised to life by the power of Jesus. 
The church of Jesus cannot and never will be fully destroyed. God will always breathe life into his remnant, into his sealed ones. Even when all looks hopeless, even when the world mocks us and says, ha, look at what your father did. He can't save you. He will bring us back to life. So here's the message in that. Do not fear death. Don't fear it. Paul writes this to the early church. And let me tell you, the early church was facing more persecution than we could even dream up right now in our culture. They were facing literal death. This is what he writes to them. What I am saying, dear brothers, 1 Corinthians 15, what I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. Come up here. Come with me, my child, my sealed one. The one who has a wall of fire protection around you. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and law gives power, gives sin its power. But thank God. He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and, be, and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Do not fear death. Do not fear what man can do, because God rules over that. This should give us great confidence to live boldly as believers of Jesus. Not fearing death, not fearing evil, we know the end. One last thing on this part. We see here that the witnesses lay dead in the street for three and a half days. Days, not years. This is a brief time that it appears that the Antichrist has defeated the church. This is a nod back to Ezekiel speaking to those dry bones and speaking the word of God over them and telling those dry bones to come back to life. This is also in contrast to the 42 months that we talked about. 42 months, 1,260 days. Three and a half years is a lot longer than three and a half days. What this tells us here is that it is in a long period of time. So let's finish this up. Revelation 11, 13 and 14. At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to God, the God of heaven. 
the second terror is past, but look, the third, ter- th- third terror is coming quickly. So we hear this sentence, a terrible earthquake, and we can so quickly let fear sit, set in and let that be our focus. There's going to be this horrible earthquake that's going to destroy most of humanity. But I want to look at what else this passage highlights. See, earthquake means a shaking. Earthquake is an elimination of evil. It's also a point back to the cross. When Jesus breathed his last breath and there was an earthquake, and that earthquake tore the curtain that was in the temple all the way into two. That curtain separated us from God's presence. But this earthquake is not representing what we want to think that it's representing. Listen, 7,000 people died. Well, that sounds horrible, doesn't it? Like if 7,000 people die now, we're like, that's, that's so tragic. And yes, it is very tragic. But listen, this is actually reverse math. And it's a symbol. It's not literal. This is a symbol of God's mercy. So let's look back for a second. In Isaiah 6, God is cleansing his people. Remember, when the prophet Isaiah was living, we didn't, he, Jesus had not come to the earth yet to take the sins of people. So God had to cleanse his people in other ways. And his judgment was often destroying them for their wickedness. In Isaiah 6, we see that he saves one-tenth of the people in this cleansing. And in Revelation, we see that nine-tenths are saved. In Amos 5, another prophet in the Old Testament, God says, a city of a thousand will only have a hundred left. That's one-tenth. Nine-tenths will fall. And in 1 Kings 19, 18, we see that Elijah, he's so depressed and he tells God there are only 7,000 left. But in Revelation, only 7,000 die. So our focus here should be on the magnitude of God's mercy to his people. He is saying, yeah, one-tenth will be lost because they've hardened their hearts. He is not a God who forces you to choose him. And if you choose not to choose him, it is terribly sad. And you will be lost. But nine-tenths will be saved. And why are those nine-tenths saved? We see this in Revelation 11. It is because of the faithful witnesses' testimony. Because of how they are killed, they're killed giving glory to God. And nine-tenths repent and come to Jesus. The faithful witnesses bring about the conversion of all but one-tenth. This is good news. So let's think about this for just a moment. Here in these chapters, we're called witnesses. And that's courtroom language. But in a court case, the witnesses are not the ones on trial. Witnesses give testimony. Witnesses provide evidence for one another. 
Witnesses proclaim truth. So who's on trial here? Is it us? Is it the witnesses? No, it's Jesus. It was Jesus, it is Jesus, and it will be Jesus. The enemy hates you because they hate him. And it is our greatest privilege and responsibility to be a witness to the world for him. We may face hard things. We will face hard things. There will be judgments that come in our lifetime that will affect us, that might even kill us. But we live in hope because we know the end and we get to testify of the one who was and is and is still to come. So what is the role of the church to be in the midst of all these judgments? It's what it always has been. To be a faithful, bold witness for Jesus Christ. And I want to read you this portion of this chapter because it just said it perfectly. We now come to the heart of the message of Revelation 11. If witnesses get killed doing their prophetic work, they win. They win. Things are not as they seem. They win because they have a new life in the city of God. They also win because killing the witnesses does something to the great city. It breaks the heart of the city. It breaks the heart of those who kill and wins the killers. It's the mystery of the cross. Jesus wins when it appears he is defeated. Jesus wins when it appears evil is in control. Jesus overcame the enemy when he let the enemy overcome him. Jesus, the faithful witness, did not back off as death sought to threaten him. Because he did not back off, but remained faithful unto death, he beat death. When death stung Jesus Christ, it stung itself to death. In Revelation 11, John is picturing that mystery the witness of those who remain faithful unto death wins the world. Things are not as they seem. Because in that moment of faithfulness, they are giving evidence that this present world with its idols is nothing compared to the world to come filled with the presence of the one true God. Would you stand on your feet? Church, this is what I'm asking of you today. This is what I'm calling us to. He has been so faithful to us. We have been given this opportunity to be faithful witnesses, to endure to the end, to not fear death, to be bold and proclaim the truth of who he is. And in that, we get to be a part of seeing people be saved, of seeing those nine-tenths come to Jesus for eternity. What joy and purpose, clarity and boldness this should put in all of us. 
Father, as we internalize this message, as we ask you to fully help us understand and give us knowledge of what this means in our life. Yes, we understand that we're a part of this big story, this big macro plan. But Lord, I ask right now that you would just cause us to look inward at our own heart condition. Look at the micro for just a moment and ask yourself, are you willing to be that faithful witness? Are you willing to come boldly up to the throne of God and say, I'm here, I'm with you, I'll testify. I will testify of who you are, even if it costs me my life. If that's something you don't feel capable of right now, but you desire it, ask the Lord to do a work in your heart and he will. He will give you that. He will give you the strength. In your weakness, his strength works best. God, cause us to be a church that proclaims and prophesies boldly who you are with hearts that are full of compassion for a lost and dying world. Cause us not to quit. Cause us not to get 50% of the way there or 75% of the way there and then look at fear and say, I can't do it. Cause us to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Cause us, Jesus, cause us, Jesus, to affect our neighbors. Causes to affect our friends and our family and our co-workers and our classmates. That in our faithful witness, they see.